I'm so glad I get to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want to tell you that this show is devoted to helping you take charge, to take control, and especially to avoid getting ripped off. And coming up in a little while, in today's Clark Rageous moment, data breaches affecting you at medical facilities, unbelievable new information for you, what you need to know to protect yourself. And coming up later, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it when you wreck your car? Is it the computers in the car? Is it the automated systems in the car? Or is it you? It's going to change the nature of auto insurance, how we buy it and where we buy it. I'll fill you in on the changes that are on the way for you and me when we buy vehicles and then the other stuff we have to buy with them, like auto insurance. So I love price wars. And there's a massive price war going on right now with the big three discounters in investing. Charles Schwab, Fidelity Investments, and Vanguard are going at it toe-to-toe with one price cut after another, after another. And the latest involves a move that was kicked off by Vanguard, and now Charles Schwab and Fidelity have responded. And what it does is it allows you to buy huge numbers of something that's like a, a brother or sister of index funds, or a cousin of a regular mutual fund called an ETF, exchange-traded fund. These are becoming one of the biggest areas that people go to to invest, to diversify their money, and to pay ultra-low costs. And on top of that, most of these exchange-traded funds, ETFs, are very tax-favorable if you're investing outside of an IRA or a Roth IRA. So what Vanguard kicked off and then you had Fidelity and Schwab respond to is that you no longer have to pay commissions on huge numbers of these ETFs. So exchange-traded funds trade kind of like a stock. And normally if you buy and sell a stock, you pay a commission. And even with the cuts and discount fees, That's still like $5 or so every time you buy or sell something. But now, these ETFs are available to you in huge numbers. Vanguard, pretty much all they sell, including from competitors. And then with Schwab and Fidelity, about 500 or so of them at each of them, which covers the lion's share of the ones that most anybody would want to invest in. You have the ability now to save enormous amounts of money, both in when you buy an investment and when you sell it, but also in what it costs you to have it over time. Because when you buy a mutual fund, an index fund, or an ETF, you pay a management fee for having your money in it, for the manager managing it. Well, what's happened is that the gap between the management fees and, in this case, no commissions, versus the management fees and commissions you pay to full commission stockbrokers is by far the widest it's ever been. And so now you're going to see 
the full commission houses respond in really weirdo ways. Like one of the new things they're up to is saying, hey, we're going to give you a personally tailored retirement account, and we're going to build it specifically around you. And we're going to charge you a fee to do that, but ours is going to be so much better than what you could do with a discounter. And so they're not going to be able or even try at the full commission houses to compete with the ultra-low costs from Vanguard, Fidelity, and Schwab. So they're going to try to say what they've got is so much better. Don't worry about stuff like that. Know that over time, what matters the most with the money that you're saving for your future, whether it's in a retirement account or not in a retirement account, is what the fees are. The more you do to hold down the fees, the more money you end up with down the road. For whatever purpose it is, you're saving the money for. Emmanuel's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Emmanuel. How you doing? Good, glad. Emmanuel, you got a question for me about one of the most reliable vehicles sold in the United States. Tell me. Yes, I, I got a, the vehicle I was looking for at a dealership through you, the, the sites that you've listed on your site. and and um, But I, I guess my, my issue is that the, the, when I got the sale agreement, it, it, items on the sale agreement, when I looked closely at it, there were things in there that I was not sure I should accept without before asking you. Okay. They have, apart from the sale price and the taxes, they have what they call the document administration fee. So I asked them. Uh, how much? How is. much is their uh, doc fee? Hundred dollars. Okay, a hundred. I will tell you, a hundred is one of the lowest I ever hear from somebody. A doc fee is a junk fee. It's known in the uh, auto industry as a pack. It's a it's a phony charge just used to rip off a consumer. And I will tell you that a hundred dollars is ripping you off at a discount because usually I hear the doc fee at about five hundred dollars. So when I asked them what that was, they said it was a fee that this. The DMV charges them to process the registration and transfer of the title and ownership of the vehicle. Yeah, that's baloney. Because you pay yeah. the whatever fees that you owe to the government, they're going to charge you on top of that uh, phony pack. But that is not a negotiable fee in the automobile industry. It's one of those things you have to know to ask about ahead of time if there's going to be uh, a dock fee or any other fees that you have to pay in addition to the agreed to price of the vehicle. Okay. And then the other big thing that they were pushing me to buy was the extended co- extended uh, warranty. But they didn't call it extended warranty on the document. They call it service contract. <laughs> yeah. So a service contract is to get around oversight from state insurance rules and state insurance commissioners. Okay. So what they're saying is you pay them a couple of thousand dollars, I'm guessing? It's actually $2,779. And the idea of that is that if major things break with the vehicle, you pay a deductible, and then past that, they will 
cover the cost of the repair, but not the dealer you're buying it. It'll be some third-party marketing company that okay. you're hoping will actually pay for a repair. All right, so, so go ahead. So the, the, the other thing that I, I thought was interesting about this was they said this, this warranty or service contract, um, my vehicle would be covered for as long as I own it. Yeah, n- n- no chance in real life. All right, and let me tell you something else. I'm neutral on these vehicle extensions because for many people, the cost of repairing a major system in a, in a vehicle is a budget buster that you don't have the money for. But okay. if you ever do buy one, the only one I want you to buy is from the manufacturer itself. Okay. Period. That So uh, this vehicle you're looking at is a Honda Civic, is that right? Yes, it is. So it's a three-year-old Honda Civic. And yep, does it have exactly. any of the manufacturer's original warranty left on it at this point? Yeah, I believe it is because it has only 20,000 miles. All right. So you likely have some amount of manufacturer's warranty left. And then buying one from Honda, if you wanted to buy an extension of that, would be the right way to go. But the big thing is if you look at Consumer Reports' record of reliability, that Honda you're looking at buying, the Civic, has a very good predicted reliability and historically has had very good reliability, which would tend to mean it would be better for you not to spend $2,775 anyway because the vehicle's one of those that tends to have very good reliability moving forward. Okay. So I have one, one other question for you, Clark. Ready. I, so when I, from the credit, the credit union that financed it for me, they also offered me a, an extension, an extended warranty, but the price was like almost two, th- I mean, almost half of what the other ones was, the, the dealership was asking. So the reason is, is that a credit union is a co-op and you're one of the owners of it. And right. at a credit union, they're not trying to make a profit on you because you're an owner. So that's why it would be uh, potentially half the money of what the dealer was trying to sell you. But again, okay. the one the credit union would be marketing you or making available to you would still not be from Honda itself. Okay. And so the question I would ask the credit union, what happens if the warranty company fails? Am I just out of luck or do you refund me some amount of my money? And that would be the question to ask them because I so prefer that you only buy from the manufacturer. Christine is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Christine, hi. hi. I understand you got a tax question for me. Let's see if I'm any good at that. <laughs> well, it's about tax and making sure you can pay it. Um, we uh, pay our taxes quarterly. And uh, where my husband works used to keep, they would put a portion of every week's check into a separate savings account for us, and then we would draw on that each quarter to make the tax payments, but they've decided they want to eliminate that bookkeeping at the office. So now I don't blame a- them. Yeah. <laughs> that was very generous of the employer, and I actually have, well, it's a, not quite an employer, because uh, your husband, if you're having to pay quarterly, he's some form of independent contractor, I guess. Yes. Um, yep. So that that is unusual and generous that they were doing it. So they've decided it was nothing but a headache. 
Exactly. And so now it's my headache. And what I don't like is having uh, his full paycheck going into our, I deposit it into our checking account. So it, I always, you know, look, it looks as if we have more money than we do because that money really is, should be segregated out into a separate account. Sure. And I'm trying to decide what should, do I put it in a savings account? Should I open a savings account or a money market account? Yeah, open a savings account uh, or money market account with one of the online banks where you'll earn right now two plus percent on the idle cash. Okay. And you may be able with the pay coming in to do a split deposit uh-huh. where a portion automatically goes into the online savings account and the rest goes into your regular bank account. Okay. And that would be the easiest because then there's never a temptation just as now the money has already been put somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So okay. if you were to go... The quickest, easiest way to see a list is go to bankrate.com okay. and click on savings rates. Now, they're first going to show you a list of, a, guess who's paying them the most money to be on their list? Mm-hmm. But then you can click a button and it'll show you everybody, including those that are paying the best rates of interest. Okay. And the minimums required to open the savings account. Most of them are uh, $0 minimum to open an account and you earn the 2 plus percent, you link it to your checking account, and when it's time for you to transfer the money over, it takes two days to transfer it back mm-hmm. to your checking account, and then you can pay those quarterlies. So to link it to, my, to the checking account, they don't have to be the same bank. They can be two separate banks. You definitely don't want the same bank. You want oh. it to be at a place you can earn a lot more money than yeah. wherever you have your checking account. Yeah. So that's why okay. you look at that list on Bankrate, okay. see the best deal, open with one of them, open the account with one of them, link it uh, with your account, and you're in great shape. Okie do. Thank you. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day. You too. Thanks. Today's Clark Rages moment is a key important warning for you. Medical offices are terrible at keeping track of our personal information. A new report from the healthcare industry finds that over 15 million patients had their records breached last year. That's roughly 5% of the American people just in a single year. And a local television station, uh, WSB-TV, just did a story about a medical provider whose paper records were just put across the street by a dumpster, nothing shredded, and the records had people's entire personal information, including their social security number on them. But that was just carelessness. According to a report from the Journal of the American Medical Association, more than half of all data breaches in the medical field are internal, that a dishonest employee working for a medical provider is there either as a mole or tempted by the information that's there, and they use the vulnerabilities of working inside to steal your information. This is a horrific problem with nearly half of all data breaches in the country each year coming from the medical field. You know, they're busy trying to treat you, trying to save you and all the rest. So they're not going to put a big focus on the security of the information. It's kind of an afterthought. Let me tell you how much of an afterthought. The average data breach last year went undetected in a medical facility for between eight and nine months. 
Imagine that. For over eight months, the crook had the ability to keep accessing people's records. Now, what can you do about it? Most important thing for you to do when you go to a medical office is right under your name and address and date of birth, they're going to ask for your social security number. That's the keys to the kingdom to steal your identity. Always, always, always leave that blank on medical office forms. The only reason they want your social security number is in the event they want to turn you over to a bill collector for unpaid medical bills. That's why they want that social security number. There is no legitimate reason you should ever give that number. Always leave that blank. It's my pleasure to have you here on the Clark Howard Show where it's about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. Our main web address, Clark.com. So there are a number of new programs around the country where instead of you buying a vehicle or leasing a vehicle, you subscribe to a vehicle. Weird concept where you pay a monthly fee, and these uh, vary in price based on how fancy a vehicle you're getting. Some of the programs are from auto manufacturers themselves. Others are from third parties. And so you pay a subscription, and with most of the programs, you have a certain number of vehicles that are eligible for you to drive that are of similar price. So you might have in your pool of what's available, you might have a sedan, an SUV, uh, maybe a convertible, a pickup truck, whatever, so that let's say you were doing a home improvement project and you were running back and forth to the hardware store a lot and you needed a different kind of vehicle, you're allowed so many switches depending on the provider per month or per quarter or whatever. And these programs, not only do you pay the monthly fee, but they usually include the insurance on the vehicle you're going to be operating because you know the vehicle you drive will change over time. And so how would you have normal auto insurance? And so, because insurance historically has followed the car, not the driver. So you pay the monthly subscription and you have it. Then we have the second factor where you are driving vehicles, if you buy vehicles now, regardless of the price point, they're going to have some amount of automation in them. Likely not to the level that Tesla and Cadillac put in their vehicles that are partially self-driving, but you may have automatic emergency braking or various uh, steering technologies that steer you out of trouble. And so the vehicle is doing it instead of you. What happens if you're in an accident? Is it the car's fault? Is it your fault? And so we are moving into an unusual era where it's possible, if not likely, that you eventually will get your auto insurance a whole different way. I don't know how it's all going to play out as a practical matter in terms of your wallet, but let's say in my car, which is, uh, I have a, a Tesla that, is, uh, that has autopilot on it, 
and I got the studio today on autopilot. So let's say the autopilot freaked out and I was in a wreck. And then it's a question of determining, was it the autopilot's fault or am I a lousy driver? Well, I probably am a lousy driver, but the question is, did the car wreck because of me or because of the technology? And so how we're going to handle insuring vehicles is more and more of automation goes into them is a really unknown because now your driving record and your driving ability will matter less than the functions that the car can perform. So I think we're going to see just as like you may have heard me talk before about the Volvo program where you pay a subscription to Volvo and depending on which vehicle you're driving, uh, you have that vehicle and they do everything. You pay a flat rate, and that flat rate includes your auto insurance. It comes from them instead of you going out and buying a separate policy. This is almost certainly where we're headed because of the question about how impossible it's going to be for your auto insurer to figure out who to point the finger at or what to point the finger at and who's responsible or what's responsible when an accident takes place. And Joel, you have an Ask Clark that trends along with this? Yeah, Clark. Robert wrote it and he says, Ohio is considering raising the 28 cents per gallon gasoline tax, but I have not heard that any tax is being levied on the owners of thousands of electric vehicles. My car averages 28 miles per gallon, so that means I pay a penny for every mile that I drive. E-cars pay zero to the road maintenance fund. Is this fair? Not fair at all. And uh, various states are imposing uh, vehicle taxes on electric vehicles. I pay a $214 a year tax, which works out to a lot more than a penny a mile, that was imposed as a punitive tax in my state legislature because there were, there were some people who were um, hostile to electric vehicles. So they did a tax that's roughly three times what a gasoline buyer would pay over a year. But different states are enacting a tax that every year when I uh, pay my registration for, depending on where you live in the country, my tag or my plate, that that $214 fee is imposed on me as an electric vehicle driver. So there has to be a system as more and more vehicles are electrified and are not buying gasoline, states have to maintain their roads. And so there needs to be a way to do that. Oregon did a pilot, uh, and I forget how many years ago, where people would have a device in their vehicle that would figure out how much they were driving on the roads in Oregon and tax you based on your actual mileage use instead of having a gas tax. And there was a lot of objection in Oregon to the state knowing where you were driving and when you were driving and all the rest is an invasion of personal privacy by the government. And so that pilot uh, was discontinued. But there will have to be some method of making sure that I don't get to freeload with an electric vehicle. And the people in electric vehicles should have to pay to maintain the infrastructure just like someone in a gas-engined car or truck or SUV. Ryan is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Ryan. Hi, how are you? 
Great. Thank you, Ryan. You want to do some work to your home. Is that right? Yeah, we're kind of looking at maybe in the next year or two to kind of fix up some things. Um, We bought the house about 12 years ago, and it's time to kind of clean up a few things and replace a couple things. (laughs) Well, we've been in our house now eight years, and what we've been doing is something that is no fun at all. We've been going through room by room and finding all the accumulated junk and clutter (laughs) that we have in each room. And it's funny because my wife and I usually get along so well. And this, uh, uh, was it today or yesterday? She got a little fed up with me that I wasn't carrying my fair share of the load of cleaning out old stuff and junk. So I, I think I'd rather be on the path you are fixing things in your home than having to clean up stuff in my home. Yeah, that's probably better. <laughs> Except my my stuff's free, and yours is going to cost money. What kind of things are you going to do? Um, I think, in general, the kitchen, we might be looking at replacing appliances, new countertop, maybe replacing a little furniture in our main room, um, fixing up some drywall, and maybe doing some painting. I think that's kind of along the lines of what we're looking at. All right, so... One thing I would encourage you is don't try to do all this at once because like doing the furniture in the living room or family room versus putting in new appliances in the kitchen or putting new counters, doing the painting. I mean, if you try to do too many things all at once, it can overwhelm you and you have trouble with perspective on the costs and what's a reasonable expense for different things and then how you're going to pay for it. So I'd rather you set priorities, that you sit down and the two of you figure out what is the highest priority and tackle that first. Okay. What is the highest priority? Is it because you mentioned the kitchen right off the bat? Probably the kitchen. Yeah. I think she she's interested in, um, uh, you know, updating everything in there. As far as the furniture and car, maybe carpet too, we have a four-year-old, eight-year-old, so we're kind of, you know, hoping that they're starting to get along to the point where they're not destroying certain things. Uh, maybe um, you should wait two more years <laughs> on doing the living room because uh, a preschooler can remain an urban destruction vehicle for a while longer. Right. And you wouldn't want to spend a lot of money on updating the furniture and putting in new carpet. And then, uh, I mean, you can't control what a four-year-old's going to do. Correct. So yeah. maybe maybe you give that one till 2021, and right now you really focus on the kitchen. Okay. And then it makes it a lot more manageable financially, too. Correct. Um, I, want, I don't know what your agenda is in terms of what you want to ask me, but I wanted to get something out there right away. With appliances, avoid the temptation to buy up on appliances. When you buy outside of the of the middle market on appliances, what happens is you're dealing with lower production runs and less experience from the manufacturer on what might need might need to be tweaked and how they're manufacturing something. And okay. so I find the appliances that you pay the most for, are also generally the least reliable. 
and that mid-market okay. on, let's say, getting a new dishwasher, getting a new refrigerator, getting a new cooktop, stove, whatever, if you stay in the middle market of high production volume appliances, you are much more likely to have something that will work well and stand the test of time. Okay. And you pay less for it, too. So now take us where you wanted to go with this. So I guess we're we're pretty good with, like, you know, saving for stuff and um, we've got decent credit and stuff. But I guess I've been trying to figure out what might be the best vehicle as far as, like, if we did have to borrow, you know, $20,000 or something. Um, the only thing, the only two things that I kind of know are, like, a home equity loan versus, like, a, a home equity line of credit kind of thing. I don't know if there's other options. I don't know which would be better. Well, those are the two um, most common, and they work very differently. And which would be right. appropriate depends on how long it would take you to pay off the money. So when you say 20, is that if you took on this whole project at once or if you did it in the bite-sized pieces I'm talking about and waited a couple of years on the living room and did the kitchen right now? Would the kitchen yeah. be that twenty, or how much would the kitchen be? I mean, I would I would say we haven't priced it out technically, so it's kind of a ballpark number. All right, then um, then let's get down to specifics about how you decide how you would pay for it. So, okay. the amount of money you borrow, whatever it turns out that it would be, if it's money you can pay off in months, and we'll talk what I mean by months. You want to do a home equity line of credit. If, on the other hand, it's going to be measured in years, 5, 10, or 15 years, you want to do a home equity loan. Okay. And the reason is the line of credit floats, and depending on the terms of the loan, every 30 or 90 days, the rate can move either direction, but right now with where interest rates are, more likely up than down. Right. Where with a home equity loan that usually you take out, most are taken out for five years, uh, 10 less frequently, and then rarely for 15 years. It's a fixed rate for the life of that term. Right. So that's how I would make the call. Once you have a real sense of budget, that would make the decision for you. And if you did do the work in smaller pieces, and and you could pay it off in a period you'd measure in months instead of years, then you do the home equity line, and when you finish paying it off, then you go on to the next part of the project. And that way you're always kind of keeping a, a limit on how much you're getting into debt to do things to your home. And you're not tearing up so much of your home all at once. Sure. And then, like on the home equity loan or line of credit, I should say, it's, it, we only pay at, like after we actually take the money out, and and like, can we close it down, basically, once we're done? Okay, so with a home equity line of credit, what happens is you have an established line of whatever limit the lender gives you, based on yep. what you ask for in part, and then what they feel you have in equity and stuff. And so yep. you only are accumulating interest and ultimately having to pay principal on what you've drawn down on the line. Okay. And so with that, you only generate 
a debt obligation and you do have to service the interest typically each month, but you don't have to service principal for a long time. That's kind of a trap. You want to, once the project's done and you know your total cost, you want to work that debt down as quickly as you can because you're paying interest typically calculated per day that that debt is outstanding. It's time for an Ask Clark with Joel. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com. You could end up on the air or Joel could ask your question for you, which he's going to do right now. Clark, we got a question from Phil. He says, do you recommend purchasing the insurance when renting a car? That is complicated. So the insurance when you rent a car, uh, auto rental companies have perhaps five different insurance type products that they'll push on you. Most heavily, they push something called CDW, Collision Damage Waiver, which an auto insure, auto rental company in their contract with you, you're responsible for the damage to the vehicle regardless of fault. And they'll try to terrify you with that. The good news is that most often your own automobile insurer covers you for temporary use of a rental car, which is usually defined as 14, 15, or 30 days, depending on your insurer. In addition, there are a ton of credit cards out there. There used to be a few. Now there's a lot that cover you for temporary use of a rental car. Some as primary, meaning you don't even involve your own automobile insurer. Others as secondary that pick up whatever your own automobile insurer does not pay. Now, if you are in an incident or accident, there is damage to a vehicle, and you have refused the coverage from the car rental company, you're going to have some time hassle. And you're going to have a bit of a tug of war making sure everything gets paid and nobody's trying to get in your wallet. But the, the thing I'd ask you, and this is why you cover it through your own automobile insurer and with a credit card, is how often are you in an accident anyway? How often do you damage your own vehicle anyway? It's such a remote thing for most of us, but the cost of buying the insurance coverages from the car rental company are so expensive that you're paying a massive amount of money per day for a risk that's really calculated in pennies per day. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.